Well, I want to welcome you this morning to First Methodist Mansfield, those who are here at our 930 Cornerstone service, those attending the Well and the Well Cafe today. Uh, this was the awkward time uh, in our service. We begin the message. Uh, we begin uh, a continuous series called Elephant in the Room. We're talking about those things that we struggle to talk about, those things that when they come up in the dinner conversation, uh, most of us want to leave the room uh, because it's just something that makes us a bit uncomfortable. Uh, we're, we're doing this uh, not only this week, uh, two more weeks. Uh, we're going to share four elephants uh, over the course of the series, not because there's only four, but because we didn't think a 46-week series would work for us. So uh, uh, put your seatbelts on. Uh, we're going to share uh, about another elephant in the room today. Uh, as we do this, I want to remind you of two passages of Scripture uh, that uh, I want us to think about as guiding us in this conversation and really framing why we as people of faith should be willing to talk about those things that we find hard to talk about. So the first comes from Matthew chapter 5. And if you were, uh, as a kid, a part of the church, if you went to vacation Bible school or church camp, you heard this passage, you are the light of the world. Uh, when you say yes to Jesus, this is the calling, this is the responsibility that we bear. We bear the responsibility of serving as a light for others to, to live in such a way that our light shines into the world, a, a light that points back to God, a light that reflects the heart and the character of God. That's what your life is about if you've said yes to Jesus. But we talked about holding this idea of being a light, of being a witness, of being a person who, uh, who exists exhibits a life of faith, holding it in tension with another thing that Jesus says just a few chapters later in, in chapter 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank that's in your own eye? Jesus talks about this hypocrisy that we are all tempted at times to, to live into where we can see so clearly what somebody else needs to address uh, and we are blinded to what we ourselves might need to address. And so undergirding everything that we're doing, this awkwardness and, and uncomfortable conversation that we're, that we're having together is this idea that light must come into our world for us to be a light for the world. The church has no business speaking uh, what we may think of as truth or a word of challenge, a prophetic word uh, about life if we ourselves are not willing to allow light to come into our world and to talk about some of those things that we uh, find difficult, we struggle to talk about. So let me show you in one word what our topic is for today. Are you ready? Good. I, I sense your energy and excitement. I'm overwhelmed by it. Thank you. Uh, here is our topic for today. Today we're talking about marriage. Now I wanted to start by just giving you one word because I want to point out something to you. That as you look at this one word, I want you to recognize that there are multiple uncomfortable conversations that we could now have around this one word. You actually don't know what we're going to talk about yet because there's lots of different ways that we could go around this singular idea of marriage. And I wanted to show it to you this way first because while this is a parallel insight, I think it's important for us to recognize this is what happens in our lives. Uh, what happens is when we uh, find an elephant in the room, it, it's usually not a singular elephant, it's a whole herd of elephants. Uh, because what happens is we struggle to talk about one thing, 
And as a result of that, we then struggle to talk about another thing. And as a result of that, we struggle to talk about another thing. And all of a sudden, there's whole areas of our lives that we don't talk about. Whole areas of our lives that, that we are uncomfortable speaking about with loved ones or close friends because we know that there's one aspect that is uncomfortable. All of a sudden, it, it creates a discomfort for another part of that, li- uh, part of that uh, area of our life and a discomfort for an additional uh, er- part of our area of, uh, of our life. So, so if this was a choose-your-own-adventure sermon, which it's not, by the way, but let's just imagine that it is uh, for a moment, here's a couple things that we could talk about. Uh, we could talk about the purpose of marriage. Now that may not sound controversial to you, but when was the last time you heard a sermon on the purpose of marriage? What's, what, what's God's design for marriage? What's this covenant all about? What, what's the function that it has in our life? That's something that we could talk about. Or, or we could, in thinking about the purpose of marriage and, and looking at the idea that we live in a culture where half of those who say I do eventually get to a place in their life where they decide to say I don't uh, and, and they walk away from that, that we could talk about divorce. And maybe you're feeling, okay, well, that, that might be a little bit more uncomfortable because uh, we know that, that in our world today, again, a, a divorce rate uh, that approaches uh, 50%, we know that statistically there's, act- there's actually no difference uh, between those who uh, claim uh, uh, an allegiance to Christ or involved in the church and those who don't. There's no difference in the rate between those two, uh, those two types of couples when it comes to divorce. We know that within our church there's many who have experienced this in their life, some who may be going through that right now. So. Well, that, that could be an uncomfortable conversation. But maybe you're thinking, you know what? I like my pastors tarred and feathered. You know, I, I want I uh, my pastor to say something really controversial and really weighed in. And so, you know, we could talk about what is a big controversy in our world. It's a, it's a debate that continues. And it's one that, uh, that, that even continues in the church. And, and that's the question of same-sex marriage. Now, I show you those three because I want you to see this. We struggle to talk about this which means that we struggle to talk about this, which means that we struggle to talk about this. And all of a sudden, because we can't talk about one thing, we can't talk about anything. We can't talk about anything in relationship to this topic. And so for the church, for us, not the world, we're talking about us here, for us, the voice of the church in relationship to the purpose of marriage, it's fully absent. Because we can't talk about this, which means we can't talk about this, which means we, we can't talk about this. Uh, we, we find ourselves grow, uh, growing quiet. And, and in a world where the, whether we're talking about marriage or, or other issues where there is perhaps confusion or uh, there, there is a desire to understand more, the, 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 the voice of the church is absent. It's, it's not there because we're just afraid to talk about many of the things that revolve around that singular issue. And and so today, here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna say a word about this, I'm gonna say a word about this, because I wanna say a word about this. Now, recognize that this could be a three-week series. We're gonna do it right here, right now. It won't be as long as a three-week series. You can say amen if you would like. Uh, That's good news for you, right? But also recognize that because it could be a three-week series and we're going to do it all in once, what I'm going to share is not everything uh, that, that we might share about each of these particular issues, but it at least begins the conversation. So we're going to talk about this, and then we're going to talk about this, and then we're going to talk about this. 
when I was uh, 15 years old, uh, I gave my life to Jesus. And, and, I, and for me, I don't know if there was anything else that I did when I was 15, year old, 15 years old that I did with a serious intent, but this was one of them. Uh, this was a decision that I made not because, uh, you know, it was, I was just feeling different that day or we sang one more verse of just as I am that day. And I thought, oh, well, I guess today's the day I give my life to Jesus. It was, a, it was a serious, serious decision that I made. And part of the reason that for me it was a serious decision is because I was raised as a preacher's kid. Which meant that when Sunday came around, you didn't like look at the calendar and think, well, you know, I could maybe fit church in today. You know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the vibe in my house, okay? It was, it's Sunday, get dressed, we're going to church. Uh, and get dressed, we're going to church, you're going to go to Sunday school, you're going to be nice to that Sunday school teacher, you're going to behave in that class because I don't want them to come talk to me about that. Uh, and, and by the way, when you come to church and you're you know, of a certain age, you're going to sit in like the first or second row because dad's preaching and mom's in the choir and they're going to be watching you, so you better, you know, you know what I'm talking about? That, that's what my life was, was like. So it was just this expectation growing up. And, and while I wasn't, you know, bitter or, or, or upset about that, there was, it was very, maybe because of personality, but also that experience for me, it was a serious decision of, do I want this for my life too? Is this really the commitment that I want to make? Uh, and, and at 15, I made that commitment. Uh, and again, perhaps because of personality or background, uh, when I made that commitment, it was not only a serious commitment I made that day, but it's one that I took very seriously. That, uh, again, don't know if there was anything else in my life at that time that I took seriously like that. But I did at that time and, and really have since. Which means for me that this has been an almost 25-year pursuit in my life of, of trying to figure out what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. In each and every circumstance and experience of life, uh, relationships and all sorts, of, all sorts of, of different things. What does it mean to be a follower? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to understand, uh, understand this word? What does it mean to put it into practice? What does it mean to, to live in relationship with, with, with people uh, who, who may think differently than I do as a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to live with the heart and the character, the ethic, the ethic of Jesus? Now, why would I tell you that? Uh, you, you may think uh, that I would tell you that so that whatever I say about these particular topics, you would just say, well, he said he's been thinking about this for 25 years, so he must know what he's talking about. I mean, I think he's read this book. I don't know. So I'll just take whatever he says. And uh, you, you may think that that's the intent, that I'm just, I'm sharing that with you to tell you, I've read the book. You should just trust me. You don't have to read it for yourself. Just listen to what I would say. And I tell you that actually for the exact opposite reason. I tell you that because I know uh, that to share a word about any of these issues, there, there, are some, there are some in all of our services who will say, I don't see that in exactly the same way. And I want you to know that I assume that you are thoughtful people. And that whatever understanding you have isn't one you have because of a coin flip that, that you took yesterday. But that just as my understanding is born out of my experience and relationships and all the things that I've been through over the course of, of 25 years, that, that your understanding reflects that same type of thing. I, I trust that you have been thoughtful. I trust that you have uh, invested time in the scriptures. I trust that uh, w whatever understanding you have in your own life is one that, uh, that, that you have come to sincerely 
uh, that you have come through, come to prayerfully, that's one that you perhaps have struggled with in a, in a significant way. Struggled with it not only on, in the sense of, uh, of a theological, what does the scripture say here, what does this mean, but also on a, on a relational level as well. And so if my understanding is different than your understanding, I want you to know up front, I'm not expecting you to do in 10 minutes what took 25 years in my own life. So with that, let me just, let me just tell you some of my convictions. Uh, on this particular topic. Uh, the first one, as a pastor, all, all three convictions that are born out of that as well, my, my understanding of my work as a pastor, I believe that when it comes to the body of Christ, all are welcome. And, and that if there is a, a local body that claims to be of Christ where others are not welcome, then it actually ceases to be a body that is of Christ. I see that in the scriptures repeatedly. I see it not only in the teachings of Jesus, but maybe even more importantly in just the ethic, the character, the heart of Jesus, the way in which he encountered and, 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 and lived in relationship with people who were different than him and thought differently than him in many, many different ways. I see it in his life and I hear it in the scriptures when, uh, when, when I read Paul and he talks about the early church and he is wrestling with the church to develop a value and an ethic that matches the values and ethics of Christ to, to be a place where all are welcome, dealing with the, the early controversy in the church between Jews and Gentiles, people who came from two different walks of life, two different perspectives, people who had in their previous lives hated one another. And yet we're coming together in this new relationship with Jesus and trying to figure it out. That if we are to be the body of Christ, it means that all are welcome. The second conviction that I have is that all, all people are individuals of sacred worth. And that means that when we sing Amazing Grace, that's not a song that we sing just for ourselves or people that we like or we love. To sing that song is to not only proclaim grace in your own life or in the lives of those who have made a similar commitment that you have made to Christ, but it's a, it's a celebration of what God has done on behalf of all. That grace is God's gift to all. To sing that song itself is a gift of God's grace. We are, we are found worthy, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done. To sing that song is to sing it on behalf of all. And also to recommit yourself to the kind of life where you are inviting others to learn that song and understand what it means for them in their own life. All individuals are individuals of sacred worth. And within those two convictions, within those two convictions as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, but as a, as a pastor who has asked this question and has wrestled with this question, uh, I would also affirm and understand Christian marriage to be uh, the same that has been lived out in the church for thousands of years as a sacred covenant between two individuals of the opposite sex. Now, let me point out to you something that just happened for some of you. For some of you, this happened instinctually. You didn't think this out. It was just something that happened within you. You couldn't help it. It just, it just occurred. For some of you, in hearing me say that, your immediate reaction was, yes. 
he agrees with me. Maybe you're already thinking about the person that as soon as service is over, you're going to call them, you're going to send them a text, or, or, or you're just going to let them know, hey, I just want you to know, Pastor David agrees with me. And if it's someone who doesn't know me, you won't refer to me as Pastor David. You'll refer to me as the Reverend Dr. Alexander, the senior minister at First Methodist Mansfield. <laughs> Some of you uh, had an unhealthy sense of affirmation because you thought, well, there's another person in the world who agrees with me. Some of you had a similar reaction, but in the exact opposite way. You, you heard that in your, what, what, what was just instinctual, what came out of you was, well, gosh, I got to find another church. I don't, I don't think I can stay here. I guess, I guess he's saying that I should, I should leave because I don't understand it that, that way. I, I see that a little bit differently than, than he does. And so in your mind, maybe you're already writing that email that you're going to send tomorrow and say, I'm sorry, I guess i got to find a different church. Because that's what happens in a polarized world. In a polarized world where we're so quick to talk, but we're so slow to listen. In a polarized world where the absolute worst thing that most of us can imagine is someone wandering into our sphere of influence who sees the world differently than we do. In a polarized world, we can't engage or live in relationship with those who see things differently than we see them ourselves, and our worlds get smaller and smaller and smaller. In every single one of our services, I know this going into this weekend, every single one of our services, there are people who understand that differently than I do. Uh, in my life, I have close friends, friends I love and I care about. I'm invested in their life. I'm committed to them. There are pastors that I know who I love, who I respect, who see that differently than I do. And my love and my commitment for any and all of them is not threatened by the fact that they see that differently than I do. You don't have to agree with everything the pastor thinks to be a part of this church. What a boring church that would be. In fact, in fact, we should go so far as to say that we should be people who are not only willing to talk with others who have a different perspective, but also we should be people who are willing to listen. And in listening, to give space to the idea that, that the sincerity and thoughtfulness of our own life is the same sincerity and thoughtfulness of another's life another's perspective, another's experience. So what about this next topic here? Uh, what, what, if anything, can we find in the scriptures about the, the question of divorce? Again, a question to be asked on behalf of a culture that wrestles with this. Well, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked the question. Uh, in Matthew 19, verse 3, one of the adversaries of Jesus comes and asks him this question, uh, and this is what he says, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, if you read the Gospels, you know this happens over and over again. Someone comes to Jesus and asks a question that is intentionally confusing, intentionally difficult, uh, intentionally inviting him to stumble upon an answer in front of the crowds that he is addressing. 
I didn't really realize this until this, this series. I was thinking about this and looking at uh, Matthew 19. Often what Jesus is asked about are the elephants in the room in relationship to the world in which Jesus was living. Divorce was one of them. If you keep reading in this passage, you'll see that. Divorce was one of those issues that the Pharisees didn't want to talk about. The Sadducees didn't want to talk about. All the adversaries of Jesus, none of them wanted to talk about. They wanted Jesus to talk about it. Here, you go ahead. Here's a microphone. Have fun. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Notice the, the confusing way in which they uh, address the question. Well, what does Jesus say in response to this confusing question? Uh, he says this, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So what is Jesus saying about divorce? And what would Jesus say to a a culture, again, in which more than half of those who say I do eventually say I don't? And that relationship goes in a very different direction than they expected it to be. What would, Jesus, what would Jesus offer to us? And before we get to that, I think we have to ask this question. What is, what is Jesus saying about the heart of God here? What, what, beyond the practical application of this teaching, what is Jesus saying about how God sees this, uh, this concern uh, of, of marriages that end in, in a way they were never intended to end. I want to invite you to think about it this way, and this is a little bit different, but I think it may be helpful. Here's a conviction that I bet everybody agrees with. Uh, I believe that God hates cancer. Is, is there anyone on the other side of that issue? Is there anyone who would say, I'm not sure, you know, maybe God's okay with this? No. Because all of us have had the experience at least of knowing someone who's wrestled with the diagnosis and the treatment and the surgery and all the things that are involved in this issue that affects so many lives. In fact, right now, I bet immediately in, in, in hearing that, immediately a, a name, a person, a situation comes to your mind. Someone that right now you are already praying for because they're going through this. You've been praying for them. Some of them may be stories or circumstances, situations that are heading in a good direction. Chemo's worked. The surgery was successful. Maybe even individuals who are really close to hearing that word remission. Some of you are praying for people who are heading in a very different direction. And so the prayer that you uh, were praying when you first heard about that diagnosis is one you're praying much more fervently than you were before. Uh, The prayer that you were praying in the beginning for healing has become uh, something so much closer to a a pleading with God on behalf of someone that you love, that you care about so much. And every single one of us has been in that place. Every single one of us knows the pain of losing someone way too soon because of cancer. And some of you here know the pain of going through that process. Maybe it's one that has ended with that word of being cancer free. Maybe it's one that you're in right now. And I would hope that all of us would feel a sense of affirmation that as much as we hate this, God hates it too. That when you pray for healing, you are praying in line with the heart of God. 
Because God hates the pain. God hates the suffering. God hates the struggle. And if that raises for you the question, by the way, well, why doesn't God just take it away? I would simply offer to you that we live in a world that is broken. It's broken in part because we have the freedom to choose how we will live, how we will respond. And in that kind of world where God gives us the gift of freedom, there is something that happens every single moment, every single day that was not what God wanted to have happen. And so if, if you know someone who is in the midst of this, if you yourself are in the midst of it, I would hope that you would feel an affirmation that, would, that would, you would hear the heart of God, God who says, I didn't want that to happen. And I am so sorry that that happened in your life. If you lost someone, a parent, a spouse, a child, that you would hear the heart of God saying, I'm so sorry that that happened for you in your life. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that in your life. And if you can understand cancer from that perspective, I think you can understand the heart of God when it comes to this issue. That God hates divorce. And part of the reason that God hates divorce, the main reason that God hates divorce is what anyone who has been through that knows so well. You know the pain and you know the loss. You know the hurt. You know how difficult it is to walk through the, uh, the loss of that relationship. There's some in our church who experienced this because they were walking away from an abusive relationship. And the heart of God would say, I hate that you had to endure that abuse. And I hate that at the end of that, you had to endure the further pain of the relationship coming to an end. Of making a decision that you knew was best for your own future and perhaps the future of your family, your children. But it still wasn't an easy one. It was one that brought additional pain into your life. That's how God feels about this. It's not a statement about individuals who find themselves walking through this, but rather a statement of the pain that we experience, that individuals have experienced, that you may be experiencing right now, going through what you never thought you were going to have to go through because of a relationship not going where you intended it to go. God responds with grace. God responds with, uh, with forgiveness. God responds with the opportunity for a second chance. That's who God is. And that's who God's people should be as well. So there's a word about two of the things that we struggle to talk about, but what about this final word? What about the purpose of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? And if you, if you just look at what our culture teaches, what most people assume, here's what most people assume. Most people assume that the purpose of marriage is happiness. Look at any fairy tale, modern or one that is old, the, 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 same is the same is true. It's all about happily ever after. The purpose of marriage is happiness. And I know all of our pastors would say, when you sit down with a young couple who's just beginning their life together, this is what they believe about marriage. And some of you have been married, you know, for longer than 15 minutes. You think, wow, that is so wrong. That doesn't make any sense, right? 
If that's the purpose of marriage, I must be doing something wrong. If that's the purpose of marriage, I was supposed to take a left turn, I took a right turn, I'm doing something. I picked the wrong person. If this is the purpose of marriage, then the goal in getting married is to find the one person in the world whose life is going to be about making you happy. And when you find them, you should, you should say yes. I mean, if that's what their goal is, if they're going to live the rest of their life every single day, how can I make them happy? How can I make them happy? If that's their goal, who wouldn't want to sign up for that? And yet so many of us, even ourselves, though, those who have, have been, been married for any length of time, we know this This is in some ways where we started. And perhaps in some ways, there are hints of this that still remain in our thinking. There are some who are here who may be thinking about walking away from a marriage because you found yourself 10 years in or 15 years in or 20 years in and you thought, well, if this is what it is, we're doing it wrong. This isn't working because I'm supposed to be happy and I'm not happy. So I should do what I should do to whatever I need to do to make myself happy because this isn't working. Many years into my own marriage was when I finally dawned on me that actually that's not the goal of her life to make me happy. And if this is what it is, then, you know, that's that's not exactly what we're we're seeing in our life. It's it's hard. It's difficult. I I realized how wrong this was. and, And as a pastor... I, I hear over and over again, uh, I was hearing early on in my, in, in my ministry, how damaging this is. Because if you believe this, and you find yourself at any point in your marriage unhappy, the logical decision is to say, well, this is crazy. <laughs> Why would I stay in this? Why wouldn't I just walk away? But this is not the purpose of Christian marriage. I'm sorry to disappoint you. It's not. And and here is what Jesus would describe as a hard teaching. But this is what I really think the purpose of Christian marriage is. The purpose of Christian marriage is holiness. Now who wants to sign up? It's not happiness. It's about holiness. It's about you actually growing in grace and the knowledge of God of growing as a disciple of Jesus. That's the actual purpose of Christian marriage. That's, that's the connection between faith and this institution that many people in our world engage in with no faith perspective. That the purpose of Christian marriage is actually holiness. Now, if you want to read more about that, I'd encourage you to read Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage. I'm just going to read you one little portion of that. But listen to what he says about marriage. What marriage has done for me is hold up a mirror to my sin. Now who wants to sign up, huh? That's what, if you know any young people who are getting married, you should read them that sentence. Here's what you're in for. It forces me to face myself honestly and consider my character flaws, selfishness, and anti-Christian attitudes. This is sounding more and more fun every day. Encouraging me, that's the polite way of saying it, encouraging me. To be sanctified and cleansed and to grow in godliness. Sometimes what is hard to take in the first years of marriage is not what we find out about our partner, but what we find out about ourselves. Christian marriage, the covenant, the sacred covenant of marriage, 
honors God because of the sacrifice that is implied in the relationship. It is, in my understanding, the primary context where your faith will grow. Not because it's easy, not because it leads to happiness, but because it's hard. It's hard to love someone the way that Jesus loves them. And it's hard to allow someone else to love you the way that Jesus loves you. It's hard to share life with someone who knows everything that you want the world to know and everything that you hope no one ever knows. And in that, to grow in love and sacrifice and service to one another. The end of that, the end of that is so much better than happiness. It's about a depth of love that reflects the depth of love uh, that, the, that the Father has for each and every one of us. And we need to talk about that. Because in, in our world, there, there are so many who struggle with understanding what this, is, what this is really all about. It's only one area, there's many. But here's what I want you to think about as you think about engaging, talking with those who may think differently than you, listening to those who, who may think different, differently than you. I want you to think about that, that what happens in the world around us, in a polarized world, a, a world in which the worst thing we can imagine is someone wandering into our sphere of influence who see think, sees things differently than we are, what happens in the world around us often threatens the work of God within us. And as a pastor, I, I will tell you that when I talk with other pastors about sensitive issues in the church, this is what scares pastors more than anything else. That the work of God among us would be threatened by all the junk in the world that happens around us. The only way to handle that well is to live like Jesus to love, to listen, to serve, to bless, to talk about things that are hard to talk about in part because the voice of the church is important when it comes to understanding things in our life that are difficult and hard. So I wanna encourage you. I wanna encourage you to be courageous. I wanna encourage you to be courageous with also the wisdom of God. Do it in a way that shows your allegiance and love for God and your commitment to living as Jesus lived. Let's pray. Loving God, we confess to you how, how hard this is for us. And Lord, I wanna pray especially for those who in hearing these issues talked about or in even thinking about, talking about, uh, talking with and listening to loved ones in their life, they, they feel such great pain. I wanna pray for those, Lord, who feel isolated, who, who feel unable to, to share from their heart what they may really want to share. Lord, I pray for, I pray for each of us that you would enable us to have a, 
clear understanding of where pride and where sin would lead us in the wrong direction in, in these conversations. That you would nurture in us a, a deep sense of humility. Uh, humility, Lord, that not only enables us to speak in a different way than we might, but also one that really seeks to listen to the thoughts of another, but also, Lord, to the experiences of another. May we do that well, Lord, because we know what's at stake. We know there are lives at stake. We know there are people whose future is at stake. So help us to be who you've called, called us to be, lights in a dark and broken world. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.